save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6, 14. We'll try to sing all four verses. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Near the cross a trembling soul, love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star sheds its beams around me in the cross in the cross be my glory ever till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river near the cross o lamb of god bring its scenes before me help me walk from day to day with its shadows o'er me in the cross in the cross be my glory ever till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river near the cross i'll watch and wait hoping trusting ever Till I reach the golden strand Just beyond the river In the cross, in the cross Be my glory ever Till my raptured soul shall find Rest beyond the river. Looking forward to that rest beyond the river. Um, uh, me and Danny was talking before church. What a day that will be. That song was sung at the funeral this week. And that's one of my favorite songs because it gives me assurance that one day I ain't going to hurt no more. I'm not going to have no pain. And a good thing too is there will be no more partying over there. That's in that song. And we won't lose no more friends. We'll have friends for eternity. Amen. That's going to be a blessing. Since Jesus came into my heart, hymn number 503, 503. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That's what happens when Jesus comes into your heart. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. <clears throat> 503. Since Jesus came into my heart, 
What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have light in my soul for which long I had sought since Jesus came into my heart. Since Jesus came into my heart. Since Jesus came into my heart. Floods of joy o'er my soul like the sea billows roll. Since Jesus came into my heart. I have ceased from my wandering and going astray since Jesus came into my heart. And my sins, which were many, are all washed away since Jesus came into my heart. Since Jesus came into my heart. Since Jesus came into my heart. Floods of joy o'er my soul like the sea billows roll since Jesus came into my heart. I shall go there to dwell in that city I know since Jesus came into my heart. And I'm happy, so happy as onward I go since Jesus came into my heart. Since Jesus came into my heart, since Jesus came into my heart, floods of joy o'er my soul like the sea billows roll. Since Jesus came into my heart, amen. You may be seated. All right, well, good evening, everybody. Well, if you were here this morning, you probably know where to turn your Bible. Uh, Psalm 99 tonight. Psalm 99. And normally on Sunday nights, we do go through the Psalms. Uh, the Lord impressed upon my heart a long time ago when I first got here, which was just yesterday, but also a long time ago at the same time, uh, to, to go through the Psalms. There's so much encouragement, so much, uh, so much reality and practicality found there in the Psalms. Now, but the Lord took us uh, this morning through Psalm 99, at least about the first half of it, uh, to look at the fact that God is sovereign and God is holy. Now, these are things that we often say with uh, our, our minds, even with our words. We go, you know, God is holy. We know uh, the song, holy, 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 and we say, you know, God's in control and things like that. But here's what really matters when it gets down to the nitty-gritty of things. If God is sovereign and holy, let me put a parenthesis, and he is, then must mean something for your life. And not just a mere factual knowledge, but a faith-filled knowledge that changes the way that we think, the way that we believe, the way that we live our life, the way that we approach our home life, our church life, our work life. All of life is truly found in these things. So, uh, let's read Psalm 99 in its entirety tonight. We'll pray and ask the Lord to help us out tonight. Psalm 99, The Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is high above all the people. Let them praise Thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. 
The king's strength also loved the judgment. Thou dost establish equity, thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Moses and Aaron among his priests and Samuel among them that call upon his name, they called upon the Lord and he answered them. He spake unto them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. Thou answerest them, O Lord our God, thou, uh, thou wast a God that forgavest them, though thou tookest vengeance of their inventions. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Let us pray. Lord, we love You. We want to thank You for this night. We're grateful that we can gather once more tonight and to, to continue looking at this Word that You gave to us this morning. And we pray that You would help our hearts and our minds to be rid of all distractions. I pray that it would be You tonight who preaches and teaches Your Word. God, that as we look at this Scripture, God, that we would be uh, not so uh, intimidated, but rather invited to come to You, Lord, that we would see the great need uh, to humble ourselves to uh, trust you tonight and God I pray that these truths that, that Christ is sovereign and, and holy Lord that you are sovereign and holy God that it would change us Lord from the inside out help us to surrender to submit to you tonight and Lord that you would work in us and through us we ask all this in Jesus name amen as we talked about this morning God is sovereign and holy he is not merely one or the other and as we talked about with all of his attributes up to this point he is not one at some point in time and then stops being this one to go be this one you and I stop being uh, happy to go be angry, right? You and I normally aren't happy and angry at the same time, are we? No, right? Uh, kind of looking to one another for, for affirmation there. We're not, right? We're one or the other. And normally it's one extreme or the other, right? This is how our, our frail and, and, and fallen flesh operates. However, God is who He is all the time. So when we talk about God is unending and unchanging, and God is God, and God is sovereign, and God is holy, up to this point in these three Sundays, back to back to back. What we mean is that God is always unending, unchanging. He is always God. He is always sovereign. He is always holy. And He's always those things at the same time. Now, He has to be. Because if He's not, then He ceases to be God. It, the attributes and the, the godness of this, this is who He is. is what He's like. It is the very thing that makes Him God. And he has revealed these things to us in a way that we can understand in our minds. He has revealed Himself to us not because He has to, but because He desires to so that we would come to Him, that we would respond by faith, that He would be able to save us and would be able to use us in His great, big, sovereign, holy plan for all things. This is who He is and how He has revealed Himself. And because of that, there is no debate there is no changing that. There is no trying to make God's attributes this, that, and the other. I remember when I was a kid, I used to, used to play a, a basketball game, and you could create your own player, right? And so my player would always be like eight foot tall. Uh, he, he would uh, have all these different things. You, you make everything all this and that, and you, you could, you could change, make him a good shooter. You could make him not so good at passing. Maybe this way and that way. You could move all these things. You and I often treat, in our minds at least, how we think about God in the same way. We think, well, God is, you know, I mean, His holiness is pretty much here. His love, though, I think His love is up here. and I think His wrath, you know, you got some people who'd be like, well, His wrath's only about here. But it, it can go up and down a little bit, right? Depending on His mood or, or, or if we make Him angry or not. But that's not the case. God remains unchanging. He remains constant. And because He remains constant, this is why we can trust in everything that He has revealed Himself to be. Now, this morning we looked at Psalm 99, 1-5, that we saw that Sovereignty and holiness 
expressed. It's just simply expressed to us. Right? Notice that he says the Lord reigneth. Not here's when he reigns, why he reigns. It's just simply the Lord reigns. It is the very word in the Lord, meaning it is ruler. He is the Lord. And because he is the Lord, singular, he is the one that reigns. He has never not reigned. He will never not reign. He is always going to reign forever and forever and forever. There will never be an end to his reign. There will ever be an end to him being the Lord. We talked about and looked at how uh, it demands an immediate response that the people tremble. And then there's some more revelation that he set up between the cherubims. His, his presence is there. We talked about how this representing the, the mercy seat of God because while God is sovereign and holy and seems so far from us, yet in His presence, there in that holy of holies where only the great high priest each year, once a year on the day of atonement could enter into and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, what we find is that there was still a way. It was God's way to get to God. You could only get to God God's way. And what we find is that through Christ Jesus, the veil between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the tabernacle, the rest of the temple, if you will, has been broken down. And now we may freely enter in, not by the blood of bulls and goats and rams and sheep and all those things, but rather through the the blood of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus is the great prophet, priest, and king. He is not just the, the one who offers the sacrifice as a mediator for us, but He is the sacrifice itself. And He is a full and final and complete one. We talked about the Lord is great in Zion where He reigns and where He's going to reign. Uh, there in, in Jerusalem is the idea. and He is high above all the people. Let them praise Thy great and terrible name for it is holy. The very name of God is holy. Now, now we talk about sometimes with the, the translators in the Hebrew and, and the way in which they would write down the Scripture and they would come to, to the name of God and how they would go through ceremonial washings and different things like that. But they took the name of God incredibly seriously. Unfortunately today, we don't do that. The name of God no longer strikes a reverential fear into people. The name Jesus does not strike a reverential fear, but rather it makes them repulsed or upset or immediately going, oh, well, you must be a bigot because you believe in Jesus, or Jesus did this, or Jesus did that. Or it gives their own idea. And this is why having the right knowledge about who God is according to how God has revealed Himself is so important because we're living in a day and an age, one, that not only not, does not know God, but they hate God. You say, what do you mean they hate God? That's what God says they do. He says the darkness hates the light. The darkness wants nothing to do with the light. And we live in a very dark world, don't we? We live in a dark world, and the reason why they're in darkness is not because the light is not available to them, but rather because they hate and reject the light of God Himself. His name is great and terrible. If there should ever be a place or people that holds to that view, it should be here at Victory Way. It should be in our homes where we're not so quick to let the name Jesus Christ become a cuss word or an exclamation where we should not allow the name of God Himself be a thing to be played with. It is very serious. It was serious not just in these times, but you go, I think we don't take it so serious because they saw people get literally swallowed up by the earth or have hellfire and brimstone literally rain down upon them and and kill them or snakes come into the, the camp and bite them and kill them. We haven't seen any of that. So we just think, well, you know, we can just get by with it. Or God, God knows I slip up. Or, or it's not that big of a deal. Or He understands. We must understand 
that God takes His name seriously. Why? Because, as we talked about a little bit this morning, His name is holy, but His name is associated and represents His character. So when we talk about Jesus, we're not just talking about a man, nor are we just talking about the God-man. We are talking about this God of the Bible who has revealed Himself to be unending, unchanging, God, sovereign, holy, and all the way down through the line of all these attributes. Therefore, we must take this seriously. It is set apart as the name Jesus itself is holy. Set apart is the idea of holiness. It is set apart that there is no other name that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. It is only through the name of Jesus. This is why today a lot of people have no problem if you say, I believe in God. They go, okay, well, good. So does another 8 billion people in the world just about, right? Matter of fact, there's some of them who didn't believe in many gods, thousands of gods. So believing in God is not so big of a deal. But to say that Jesus Christ is God, that's where it becomes a big deal. Because Jesus Christ is God. That's what separates a believer from an unbeliever. That's what separates much of what we call churchianity and Christianity today. And a submission to Christ alone. We talked about in verse 4 this morning about how it is expressed God's sovereignty and His holiness and how He works and how He acts. And then once more, exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at His footstool, for He is holy. Now, it is not enough to know God is sovereign and holy, but to receive the truth by faith. Because we can know lots of facts about the Bible and read the Bible every day, and if it only stays in our mind, then it does us no good. It must be brought into our heart, and the only way it is brought into our heart and brought into our life, brought into our homes, brought into our church, brought into our community, is by faith. What is faith? Faith is not blind, but rather it is going, this is who God is, this is what He's like, this is what He's done, what He's doing, what He's going to do. Therefore, I put my faith and trust in that. Faith, it is a total dependence, a total surrender, a total trust. It is believing God as He has revealed Himself to be. Only then will it be applied to all of our life. I've had plenty of folks who look and they go, well, talking about God and going through Bible doctrine and things like that, well, that's, that's not practical stuff. It is the most practical thing that there is. To know the character of God is the most practical thing to the Christian today. Because if we don't know who God is, how will we ever trust Him? If we don't know who God is and what He's like, why would we ever serve Him? Why would we ever get more into His Word? Why would He even have that desire? It is because God has shown us and revealed Himself to us that we even have a reason to respond. It is God who has revealed that causes us to respond. And there is a response that must be had. And everyone today, whether they understand it or not, is responding to God. You are either responding to God by faith or you are responding to God in the flesh. And far too many Christians today who are saved, as saved can be, are responding to God by the flesh by saying, now, okay, well, you know, I know some facts, or I know how to pray, or I know how to study, or I know how to learn, so therefore I can do those things. Well, a man can learn a lot without ever knowing anything. Right? We are living in a generation today that is full of all sorts of knowledge. It lacks wisdom. We are full of all sorts of ability to go and to find resources, and yet we have no idea how to truly learn or study, let alone to get to know God. Now, we've talked a little bit about this whole idea of it is God's holy sovereignty that will, that will cause us and brings us to this place of surrender. And it ought to bring us to a place of surrender. But there are those who, when we talk about God's sovereignty, they get upset about it and they go, well, well what about my freedom? What about my sovereignty? 
what about my choice? What about my responsibility is the idea is what they're getting at. Everything that comes back to me, my, I, there's a problem there already. Our testimonies, mind you, should not be starting with I, but rather He. Is even this, now I'm not saying to say that I trusted Christ is a bad thing. That's a correct statement. Would you agree? That's salvation, right? You have to trust Christ. I, I repented of my sins and trusted Jesus. That's a salvation testimony. But I believe that our testimony should start with God first, should they not? God and His sovereignty and His holiness saved me. He died for me. He rose again for me. He let me hear the Gospel. He convicted my heart. He gave me grace, right? That's, that's a depth of understanding more and more. And it takes a while to get there. Because when we first get saved, all we know is I trusted Jesus. But as we go deeper, our walk and our testimony should see all the more God's work in His hand all over our life. It was A.W. Tozer that wrote in A Knowledge of the Holy, Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow a moral freedom upon His creatures. He would be afraid to do so. Is there anything that God is afraid of? No. Why? Because He is sovereign and holy. If you're sovereign, you're the big man on campus, aren't you? Right? You're the one in charge. Now, I remember this. When I was an 8th grader, I, I, I was kind of, you know, I wasn't cool, but you know, I'm still not cool. Probably never going to be. But... In the middle school, I, I wasn't really afraid of nobody. I got along with everybody. I had a little bit of popularity. Teachers liked me. Things were good. And then I went to high school. And I was a freshman. Now, I was already bigger than most of the high schoolers because I, I, I about stopped growing in eighth grade, believe it or not. Can you imagine this? Eighth grade? That, that's how it's been, though. I remember going there, and my first day, I found, rather, I didn't find someone. They found me. They were a senior and happened to go to my church. They didn't go necessarily faithful, but they knew me and they found me and they, they gave me a shove, knocked me down. It was a girl too, knocked me down. I got up, I go, oh no, my first day I'm going to get beat up or had to get in a fight, whatever it might be. And they go, you're going to be okay, it's fine. We'll watch after you, right? But I remember going from feeling like, okay, I've got this whole school thing figured out to being, I'm nothing. I, I went from being maybe big man on campus, or I thought there was a big man on campus, to I don't even know what this campus is right? God isn't even the big man on the campus. He owns the campus, right? He's not just the principal. He's not just the superintendent. He, he is the one who rules it all. He makes the school books, right? He, he takes care of all of these things. And when we understand this, we, we come to this place where God is not saying because He is sovereign that we have no choice in the matter. Rather, we have the choice to either trust in His sovereignty or to reject it. To reject it, though, brings about either one, if you're lost, damnation for eternity, or two, if you're saved, a miserable Christian life. And I know an awful lot who are in the latter. Who refuse to surrender to God and are, the, are saved, genuinely have trusted Christ for salvation, but now, now are miserable, are unsettled in their faith, they get frustrated, they're, they're critical, all these sorts of things because there's a lack of surrender to God in all parts of their life. Now you and I tonight would all say that God is sovereign, right? Over all things. But if we get down to the nitty gritty, is He sovereign over all parts of our life? The truth is, He is. 
But the backside of that truth is that we have not surrendered to that sovereignty over everything in our life. I wish Pastor Joe could say tonight that he's done that. Every little spot, every single day, every single moment. This is why this morning we talked about it. Watchman Nee had said that you have to come to this place. It's almost a second salvation, if you will. It's this day where you come to a place of absolute surrender. But I would add to our brother who's gone to be with the Lord now, I would add this. It must not just be a one-time thing. I believe that there is an experience that happens the day that you finally throw the white flag up. I remember some distinct moments in my walk that have been those days, if you will. But it must be every day. Because every day when you wake up, your breath is no longer your breath. Your change in your pocket is not your change in your pocket. Your shoes on your feet are not your shoes on your feet. Your house is not your house. Your Bible is not your Bible. Your possessions are not your possessions. Your family is not your family. Everything is unto the Lord because He has given all these things. Therefore, we only find freedom when we surrender to God's sovereignty. We find, and I found this in ministry, and I haven't been doing this but for forever, right? This is all I've truly known, but still so young in the ministry. And I can tell you this, the most miserable Christians that I have found aren't the ones that don't lack for physical things in the world. They've got plenty of stuff. But the most miserable Christians that I know in the world today, and in my ministry, sometimes it's myself. But lumped in the matter, the ones that are miserable who are Christians have yet to get to that place where everything belongs to God. Everything must belong to Him because everything already belongs to Him. The difference in this is whether we acknowledge it by faith or not. So our minds go, well, everything belongs to the Lord. But our hearts whisper back quickly, yeah, but you can't give, can't give that extra this week to, to a missionary. Or, or, you know, hey, why don't you uh, make sure your savings account is okay? Now, I'm not saying don't have a savings account. I'm not saying don't have a little bit of, of food in your pantry. What I am saying, though, is that if we really believe what we say in our mind that God is sovereign, it it will change what we actually believe, what we actually live, what we actually do. Now the great thing about God's sovereignty is that the reason you have a choice is because God chose that you could have a choice. God does not choose your choice. God chooses that you can have a choice. Now, in God's sovereignty, we, we call that His rule, right? I remember that there were times when my mom or my dad would show their rule in the house. Their sovereignty in that house and over me until I was 18 and and, 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 and able to move out and get kicked out and that didn't happen until I got married and and, and all that sort of thing, right? But here's what would happen. I remember that they would choose to give me a choice at times. Which would be, you can either do this the easy way or you could do this the hard way. Or you can do this chore now or this one later plus that one. And whatever else I find. But they made the choice to give me the choice at times. Now, I enjoyed that at times because I could make a choice. But what it did is it caused me to have to learn to make those choices. Much of the Christian life is learning to make the right choice. We know the right things to do. We know to read our Bible. We know to pray. We know not to sin. I don't know what else I could tell you to do or not to. You know all those things. But the nitty-gritty comes to whether you choose to act upon it or not. 
if someone had dropped a nice $100 bill back here in the, in the lobby. Did anybody do that, by the way, tonight? <laughs> okay. If you did, right? If, if that happened and you saw it, what would be the right thing to do? Pick it up. All right, there's step one, Doug. There we go. <laughs> That's step one. Doug's going to be going, oh, I think, oh, everybody, I think, uh, I think I dropped my uh, $100 bill over here. I'll be right back. Uh, sorry, everyone. Uh, yeah. You're going to pick it up, but what would be the right thing to do? To do something about it, right? You know the right thing is going, and that's not mine, so I need, to, I need to give it to somebody who could do something with it or to get it to the right person, or even if anything, worst case scenario, stick it in the box where it's locked up and protected. You might know to do that. But faith, and here's the difference between knowing and believing. Knowing says, oh, there's a $100 bill right there. Somebody should do something about that. I should put that up. I should give it to somebody. I should pick it up, at least get it off the floor. Anything like that whatsoever. And you know, oh, that also means if it's not mine, I shouldn't put it in my pocket, right? Faith does it, right? You and I in our Christian minds know, don't sin. Read your Bible. Pray. Faith, though, kills sin. Reads your Bible and prays. Without faith, those things won't happen. God's sovereignty and holiness must be expressed to us as we've seen in this psalm, but now it must be experienced if we are to know, to truly know, and to truly trust Him. Now as we talked about this morning, as we talked about as we were looking at all these things, I believe that we are missing something in today's modern Christianity, and it is that word experience. We talk about in our minds, we say, I know objectively that I need the presence of God. But yet many of us, because we refuse to have full faith and assurance that God's presence is one, already abiding within us through His Holy Spirit, or two, desires to meet with us as we gather as a local body of Christ, that we often just miss out on God's presence because we're too busy thinking instead of experiencing God's presence. The ones that experience God's presence are full of faith. They trust that when they open up their Bible that they're that they're hearing God speak. They trust that when they go to the Lord in prayer, that God will answer and that God desires to answer and that God desires for us to come to Him with petitions and with our heart. We're going to get into that in a moment. Faith is the difference maker. And I'm not talking that you have to be this sort of giant of faith or have great faith. As a matter of fact, Jesus did not say that you have to have large faith, did He? In fact, He said faith that's pretty small can do a whole lot. I wish that my faith was as big as a mustard seed. Our problem in modern Christianity is that we think because of our knowledge about God that that means that spiritually and by faith that we are somehow bigger than a mustard seed. We think that they're much more faithful or much more intelligent or much more spiritual because we've been around this whole Christian game or this church game long enough. We know the ins and the outs, but that is our great problem. We know too much about a God that we fail to experience. We failed to know Him, to walk with Him. What separated men like Enoch and Noah in their dark days was not a head knowledge. It was that they walked with God. Walking with God goes from something being expressed or educated upon or about, right? And it becomes experienced. You, if you're going for a walk with someone, that has to be experienced, right? That's what we're talking about. Now as we get into verses 6-9 here, we address, first of all, that 
God's sovereignty and holiness was experienced by Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. Different times, different places, of course. Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them that call upon his name. That's faith, isn't it? They called upon the Lord. That's faith, isn't it? And he answered them. That's God's faithfulness. That's his sovereignty. That's his kindness. That's God being God. Now, all these men acted as mediators, priests, praying saints. They acted on behalf of other people, but they had a, a close relationship with the Lord themselves. Now, were these men perfect? No, not by any means. But God revealed Himself to them, and they responded by then calling upon His name. That's faith. They trusted Him. And they kept His testimonies. That's faith in action. It's not merely works. It's not merely trying to please God, because the only thing that does please God is faith. And so every work that Moses and Aaron and Samuel had to do must have been through faith. And every act that you and I must do must be by faith. This is why when we find in Hebrews 11 a whole chapter of faithful people, what does it say about all of their, uh, their, their uh, exploits and all of their works and all these great things that they did in their life? Before it tells us what they did, it says, by faith. Because nothing will ever be accomplished for the Lord except by faith. No amount of education, no amount of knowledge, no amount of gifting, no amount of money, no amount of... Nothing by faith alone. Calling on God is what they did. Calling on God is trusting in His sovereignty and in His holiness. And what would you and I call it to call upon God? You and I might call it worship, singing, praising. But I believe something even more specific for our Christian life today. It's what you and I might call prayer. Prayer is an act of faith itself. Why would you pray if you could do it? It would make no sense. Right? This is why the Bible tells us pray about everything. And everything. Pray, pray, pray. Why is that? Because Jesus said that without me, you can do nothing. Last time I checked, it doesn't matter what you look up, whether it's Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, or English, nothing means nothing. We can do nothing without the Lord. We desperately need Him, which is why a doctrinal truth of knowing that God is sovereign and God is holy should cause our hearts to rejoice because that means I can trust Him when I pray. If God was not sovereign, I would have no point in praying. If God was not in control, I would have no point in praying. You say, and here's what happens to some folks. They say, well, if God is sovereign, then why would you need to pray? See, they're asking the wrong question. The question shouldn't even be there at all. Rather, it should be going, because God is sovereign, therefore I should pray and ask Him and tell Him about it because God in His sovereignty desires to act on behalf of His people. God desires to have us come to Him and to trust Him. There's never one of us or any of us or even all of us put together that could ever overwhelm God. Why? Because He's sovereign. I think about this saw today in our sweet missionary family that was here with us, they, they had six young'uns, right? And they had not just both hands full, they had every hands full, and even a couple of our hands full, right? But it was a wonderful thing. But you know something? Every time one of those young'uns said, Mom, Dad, they had their attention. You and I fail to forget that what happens sometimes when you and I think about God's sovereignty and His holiness 
and how large and in charge He is. We forget all it takes is one word from His child and we have His attention. But that's faith. That's trust. Do you know that with one prayer you can reach the the ear of God Almighty Himself if you know Him? A prayer of faith to go to Him and immediately you have His attention. And He's got billions upon billions of other things to be worried about that are much more important than your ingrown toenail or whatever you might have going on. But God cares and gives you the attention that you ask. Think of that. Why can He do that? Because He is sovereign. You see, there is no need to pray to a God who can do nothing about it or cares not to move on behalf of His people. But each prayer of faith is casting self upon His holy sovereign care. Because God is in control, I can trust Him with this need. Because God is in control, I can go to Him with every need because there's nothing that He can't do on behalf of me, His child, that He saved, that He adopted, that He cares for. God revealed Himself to these men, but they still yet had to respond. That's the beauty of God's sovereignty. That it both reveals, but it elicits and it calls for a response. And their response was this. That they called upon His name. They called upon the Lord. And He answered them. I would say to us tonight that many of us might call upon Him once. Have you tried calling upon Him twice? How about a third or a fourth or a fifth or a sixth? Many of us mistake God's silence for His lack of care. And that's not the case. Rather, what He is doing is having us draw all the more to His side, near to the cross as we sang earlier, and to trust Him What happens is I believe that we fall so short so quickly because we get discouraged. We often think, well, you know, I prayed about it once and God didn't answer. I prayed about it twice and God didn't answer. I prayed about it three times and God didn't answer. God is answering. There's never a moment God is not answering the prayer of His people. A lack of prayer, though, is a lack of faith in God being in control. The reason why I don't pray like I ought to, and here's the reason, and this is, what, this is what's tough. The reason why I don't pray as often as I ought to and all things as I ought to is because there's a root there and that root is that I don't think that God cares or can handle it. If we believe that God cared and we believe that God could handle it, do you think that our natural response should be to pray? Well, absolutely. That's a no-brainer. However, if we look now and turn the mirror to ourselves and we look at our prayer life, would, would our prayer life or our prayer journal or our prayer list or our, would that show faith? Would it show that we are trusting and believing that God is in control and desires to answer these prayers? And furthermore, he says that he spake unto them in a cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance that he gave them. God continued to reveal, and I believe this, the more that we respond by faith, the more God reveals to us. God trusts us with who He is. To think about that. This is why I believe it is so important that when we don't respond by faith, why would God want to let me in on some more knowledge of Him? Now think about this. 
If you were in a close relationship with somebody, let's say wife, right? That's pretty close, isn't it? Should be. But here's the thing. If you were keeping and giving secrets to your wife, right? And then they were telling somebody else those said secrets. That'd be be kind of tough, wouldn't it? You wouldn't want to be telling a whole bunch more secrets to them, would you? Probably not. Now, God is holy and righteous and perfect and kind and gracious. And I believe that the Lord has not only just given us His Word, but He desires to reveal it piece by piece. If we're not reading by faith, we'll never receive anything. You can read this like a phone book and not know God any more than you did when you first started reading. What's the difference? How does God reveal? I believe that as we trust Him, as we read, as we study, as we pray, God reveals a little bit more and a little bit more because what He finds is that if we are faithful, He can trust us a little bit more with the knowledge of Him. Now, I believe that there are many today who have enough understanding of God because He's revealed Himself to them by His grace and they have received Him by faith to be saved. But there are many others who then go, well, I just don't know what else to do. What's more than that? Oh, there's so much more than that. There is an ocean of knowing God and walking with Him. And He desires for us to take the plunge, but you'll never go further out there unless you have faith. Nor will we be able to go further and further unless we ask. I could tell you this every time in my life that i found that sort of moment where it's been this sort of new moment with God, if you will. As we had talked about earlier, that sort of experience of surrender. It has not been because I'm good or great or even close or somewhere in between, but rather it's because God has revealed a little bit more and by faith I've trusted and by faith I've asked for more. What we see in the life of Moses is this. God had let Moses in on a whole lot that He didn't let the rest of Israel in on. Matter of fact, what happened in the rest of the life of Moses is that Moses did not stay satisfied with just a little bit of knowledge. He was, okay, you've given me a staff that can turn into a snake and part some waters. That's pretty cool. God, thank you for this thing. It's a cool stick you gave me. No, as a matter of fact, after he had been with God on the mountain and he comes down and he sees that Aaron and the rest of Israel had sinned, he goes and he meets with God and it says, as it were, face to face. Nobody else in the camp was doing that. God trusted him. Moses believed by faith. And so there was a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. Was every priest allowed into the Holy of Holies? No. Only the high priest. And if he didn't approach God the right way, he wasn't going to be the high priest for long that year. That's right. But then Moses is struggling. And he goes, God, you're supposed to take us to the promised land, but I'm not going to go another step another mile with these people unless you tell me that you're with us. God says, I'm with you, and I'm going to get you there. And then Moses says, well, one more thing, and i got some more here. Moses says, now I want you to show me your glory. Peel back the veil even further. I believe our issue today with our Christian walk, and the reason why we're not experiencing a deeper walk with God is because we're not asking for it. We're asking for God to do things that might give us the tinglys or the fuzzy feelings or to answer these minuscule things, but we're not really asking for a depth of walking with Him because that requires, one, faithful surrender, and two, it requires God 
to let us in and for us to show ourselves faithful. It is a daily surrender, a daily faithfulness. Now over in, what time is it? It's 7.15. Okay, all right. (laughs) Y'all laugh it up, won't you? Laugh it up. That's all right. (laughs) Deuteronomy 9 tells us about this sort of thing. Deuteronomy 9 and into chapter 10. It's this whole chapter where Moses is recounting this golden calf event and how God had, had shown up on the scene, if you will. In verse number 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 9, it says, Understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. God was doing it. He says, Remember, and forget not how thou provokest the Lord thy God to wrath in the wilderness from that day and that thou didst depart out of the land of Egypt until ye came into this place. Ye have been rebellious against the Lord. Why would God deliver them immediately in the promise when they've been rebellious? It's no wonder they had 40 years of, of, of wandering. It's no wonder they didn't have 41 years. It's no wonder that some of us have not been wandering for 40 years. Faith is the difference. He says, also in Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry with you to have destroyed you when I was gone up into the mount of, to receive the tables of stone, even the tables of the covenant which the Lord made with you. It's, a, it's the, the Ten Commandments. Then I abode in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither did eat bread nor drink water. And the Lord delivered me unto, uh, unto me two tables of stone written with the finger of God. What's that? Revelation. As God revealing Himself. The Ten Commandments are not merely a list of do's and don'ts. It is the revelation of God's character. It is God saying, this is perfection and this is what I require because I am perfection. He is holiness. This is why none of us could ever keep one, let alone all ten. This is why we need Christ. This is why Jesus had to do what Jesus had to do. It says, and the Lord delivered unto me two tables of stones. And it says, which the Lord spake with you in the mount out of the midst of the fire in that day of the assembly. That was God's revelation. That was God showing up, overwhelming them with his sovereignty and his holiness. Verse 12, and the Lord said unto me, Arise, get thee down quickly from hence. For thy people which thou hast wrought forth out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They are quickly turned aside out of the way which I commanded them. They have made a molten image. Furthermore, the Lord spake unto me, saying, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. He said that before, hadn't he? Let me alone that I may destroy them, and blot their name from under heaven. And I will make thee a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, the mountain burned with fire. God's holiness. And the two tables of stone, uh, two tables of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God, and made you a molten calf. And yet turned aside quickly out of the way which the Lord had commanded you. And I took the two tables and cast them out of my two hands and break them before your eyes. Was Moses perfect? No. Were the people perfect? No. God is not looking for your perfection. He's looking for your submission. We don't like the idea of submission. The reason why we don't is because it causes us to humble ourselves before God. It causes us to show that we are not as big as we think we are. We are not as in control as we think we are. We are not as holy or as righteous or as good or as whatever we think we are. And it causes us ultimately though, and here's the good thing, submission calls us to depend upon God. And that's a good thing. We think that depending upon God is a bad thing. That must mean He's weak. 
he's at the altar every week, or or they're always putting something in the prayer box for Pastor Joe to pray about. Oh, always something new, always crying, always asking, always praying. That's a good thing. That's someone to me who knows their dependence upon God. I'm much more concerned about those who don't have such. He goes on, and it talks about all of this back and forth and how the Lord continued to work and reveal His sovereign, holy self to them. He gave them, it says in chapter 10, verse 4, and He wrote on the tables according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord spake unto you in the mount of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them unto me. And I turned myself and came down from the mount and put the tables in the ark which I had made. And there they be as the Lord commanded me. God trusted Moses more and more, but even there came a point where Moses sinned and God said, you won't go to the promised land. But nevertheless, Moses remembered that he lived a life by faith. Aaron, even though he led the people and caused sin, yet by faith. How about Samuel? The Bible tells us about him too. Was Samuel perfect? No, not by any means. Well, what we find is in Samuel chapter 1 Samuel, chapter number 3, Samuel's just a, a little child still ministering unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. There was no continued revelation. It wasn't happening. As a dry spell, if I ever heard of one. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place, and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see, and ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. And the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. And he runs into Eli, going, Eli. And Eli says, That won't me. Goes back again, does it again, does it again. And eventually, here's what we find this beautiful truth. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God revealed himself more to Samuel than he did to Eli. Why? Faith. Was Eli a saved man? I believe so. But God had stopped the open vision, the open revelation in those days. The Word of the Lord was precious. Samuel was prepared, though, each time he heard the Word of the Lord to simply say, here am I. Here am I. Here am I. What is here am I? It's submission. It's absolute trust. Now, he believed that he was going there to serve Eli. He did not know that he was yet talking to the Lord. But then the chapter ends, and the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel. God would use Samuel mightily. What we see is that only experiencing His sovereignty and holiness brings forgiveness and answer to prayer. It brings us to a place of surrender. But the experience is only applied when we respond by faith. Here am I. Or as Moses said, Lord, show me your glory that nobody else had seen, that nobody else got let in on. Now, back in our text in Psalm 99, we're we're about done here. We're going to wrap this up. Psalm 99. We find some more about God's sovereignty and, and His holiness. He cared and He answered their prayer in verse 8. He forgave them. But yet He took vengeance. Their inventions. Why? Because He is still yet holy. He cares to forgive, but He also 
will continue to be who He is, and that is holy. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Three times in this chapter, in this psalm, His name, for it is holy, for He is holy, for the Lord our God is holy. Now it adds the whole thing together. The Lord our God is holy. There's no denying that. When we dwell and meditate upon the holiness of God, upon the sovereignty of God, it's going to make our sin much more egregious. It's going to make it a lot harder to sin if we're meditating about who God is. When our thoughts are upon the Lord, our thoughts will not be so much upon the flesh. So what do we do? We exalt God. We worship Him for who He is, for who He has revealed Himself to be. He is the providential, personal God, the Lord our God, and He is holy. He is sovereign. Worship is found to be the response of a surrendered soul. The one that has freely given themselves to the Lord finds the most freedom in worship. The ones who are stiff, unable to sing, or unwilling to sing in a church service, They'll be the unsurrendered ones. They're not the ones that can't sing either. They've got beautiful voices according to the Lord if they'd simply lift them up. We lift up our voices by faith. We sing by faith. We act by faith. We give by faith. We live by faith. All by faith. Worship is humility. Worship is an act of faith. John Owen wrote this. The foundation of true holiness And true Christian worship is the doctrine of the gospel, what we are to believe. So when Christian doctrine is neglected, forsaken, or corrupted, true holiness and worship will also be neglected, forsaken, and corrupted. What we see is that today we know all about these doctrines and all about these different things about God, but the reason why we remain so miserable in our Christian existence is because faith has not applied it to our hearts. So we remain unchanged by it. We're always looking for something more practical. Something more, one, two, three. Do this, do that, don't do that. God is not looking. What is that? It's the law. Most of us get saved and think that the sanctification process is going back to the law. It's not. It's by grace, through faith, surrendering to God who has freed us from that law. When you're looking for the practicality of give me something to do, what you're saying is I think the law is better than grace. You're saying I think the law is better than trusting in God's sovereignty and God's holiness and me simply surrendering myself because I don't want to surrender myself. I just want to do something so I can be assured or rest my mind and say, well, I did this and this, therefore I must be right with God or I must be growing spiritually. That's a dangerous place to be, dear believer. If we are to be holy unto the Lord, then we must see His sovereignty and holiness expressed and experienced in our life. And the only way that it will be expressed is by God's grace and received, experienced by faith. God's grace reveals, faith responds. Here's how we close tonight. See, faith receives what grace reveals. Faith, worship, all this comes down to trusting in Him. God is sovereign. God is holy. And because God is sovereign, because God is holy, it gives me a reason to believe and trust God in all things, for all things, and through all things. Though it may be intimidating to think about for too long, 
yet it is the thing that invites us to draw near to Him. Because I can trust that He's in control. And because He is holy, I can trust in the finished work of Jesus and know that though my flesh is unholy, though at times I've been unholy, that now when God sees me, He no longer sees me, He sees His Son. So what are we to do, Christians? As Tozer put it, caught in this dilemma, what are we Christians to do? We must, like Moses, cover ourselves with faith and humility while we steal a quick look at the God whom no man can see and live. The broken and the contrite heart He will not despise. He must hide our unholiness in the wounds of Christ as Moses hid himself in the cleft of the rock while the glory of God passed by. We must take refuge from God in God. Above all, we must believe that God sees us perfect in His Son while He disciplines and chastens and purges us that we may be partakers of His holiness. We are to rest in Christ, the sovereign, holy God, who has allowed us now to put all things in Him. Because I can't hold nothing. God can handle it. What this should do, dear believers, I know... This morning was long, tonight is long, but talking about God's sovereignty and holiness is a difficult thing for us. It's hard for our flesh to take. But the greatest thing that you and I could do is to dwell, to meditate upon it, and for it to cause us to surrender. And here's how you'll know you have surrendered your life to Christ. You'll praise His great and terrible name, for it is holy. You'll exalt the Lord your God and worship at His footstool, for He is holy. You'll exalt the Lord your God and worship at His holy hill, for the Lord your God is holy. It will draw you deeper and nearer to the Lord more than ever before. And something like that can't help but go noticed. Let us pray tonight. Lord, we love You. We thank You, God, that You are sovereign, that You are holy, that we can trust You that we can depend upon You. God, help our hearts, even tonight. May tonight be that night for someone who has never truly surrendered their whole life to You. May tonight in this moment be that night. God, for each of us, as we lay down our, our head tonight, may we rest upon Your sovereignty. May we rest upon Your holiness. May we surrender tonight, Lord, to You, that You would give us all that is needed to rest tonight, that You would give us what is needed to wake up tomorrow and to surrender once more and to rest and to trust in You who you are, what you're like, what you've done, what you're doing, what you're going to do, what you desire to do in us, through us, and for us. God, may we live and walk by faith alone. Thank You that You would reveal Yourself to us through Your Word. But God, help us now by faith to respond. In Jesus' name, Amen.